Hello and welcome to my fetch. I have been absent for what feels like quite a while. Um, there is good reason for this, and uh, that's part of what I would love to get into. Um, so, from Pardon the noise, moving a few things around. Um, however, the um, the um, my absence was in part due to a hospitalization um, for myself from. February, from early February to basically mid-March. I think the number of things that I've missed in commenting on or commentary on, especially politically, is a bit much to go back to all of the different uh, things that I normally would have uh, commentated on or provided my wonderful, stimulating, thought-provoking uh, vantage on some of those things maybe are uh, worth being addressed, but really, um, I'm kind of shooting from the hip here. I have a few things written down, but one of the things that really I want to address is the um, is the healthcare system in this country because it's woefully inadequate. And uh, for those of you who feel that it is adequate, it might be because you've never really needed to use it. And if you have needed to use it and you still think it's great, well, uh, you know, that's great. I mean, I, I would love to um, hear such experiences because it's certainly not, not my experience. Um, that said, I'm not exactly living in the bastion of uh, the healthcare community in the United States at present. So I do recognize that. However, there's no excuse for basically what I've experienced. Uh, not the first time. It's over several years in this current location. Um, and uh, it's just really, it's, it's, it's piss poor. It's, it's the, the, the uh, machinery and the, let's say, expertise... Uh, book knowledge might be, um, you know, really good at a really high level, second to none, I really don't know, uh, but the application of common sense and the application of, uh, of those machines and of the actual science is so beyond poor, and part of the science that's ignored, uh, I guess I'm just going to jump into it, but part of the science that's so woefully ignored is that of the patient input. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up, one, because it's part of a discussion that's been uh, a hot topic for, for decades in terms of reforming the system from a macro perspective, like everyone needs to be covered. Well, frankly, everyone doesn't really need to be... Uh, everyone should have the ability to get help when they need. But everyone doesn't need this, you know, gold standard Cadillac healthcare plan because they just they're not going to use it and 
there should be things to help people who are healthy maintain their health. Um, you know, maybe giving um, giving uh, uh, um, a uh, a tax rebate, giving. Uh, um, rebates for membership on a gym. I don't know. Maybe there are some perks or things that can help people who have no problems and are perfectly healthy or the pristine of health. That'd be really great. Um, I don't think that that's where the where the you know the focus needs to be because people who are in good health are not costing the system and they're not costing themselves money either because they're in good health. They may be costing themselves money in other ways to maintain that health, to go to the gym, to buy supplements, to not take. Uh, pharmaceutical drugs when they don't really need them, things like that. But for people um, such as myself who are um, have, uh, one, rare conditions, they're called often orphan conditions um, by the, let's say, medical community as well as the layperson community. An orphan condition simply means it's, um, there's, there's not... Um, uh, it's, not a, it's not a condition that a lot of people have it's orphaned in the sense that there's, you know, maybe research being done, but it might be minimal. There might be not so much funding for that research. Um, there are drugs that are recycled for these conditions. Most of the drugs that are being recycled for any kind of condition um, that is um, immune-related, which now there is, everything is, you know, claimed as immune-related, is basically recycled chemo, which has a whole history behind it. Um, and um, it's like carte blanche for everyone. So the same, you know, recycled chemo that I'll get, the, the next person will get, despite my system maybe being very different than theirs. The condition I have is also, a, a, besides being rare, it's known as, um, it, it's, it's called a snowflake disease, uh, meaning that we all react very differently, and the cocktail of medications we're on one person could be on X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and I could need only X and C. And if I take the other ones, I'll do poorly. Um, and any amalgamation of that could be also different titers, different infusions, different infusion rates, different uh, supplemental drugs, could be different doses, different uh, frequency. So it gets very complicated. Uh, as I like to say, the immune system is really smart and often smarter than we give it credit for. So even when we trick it, let's, you know, let's just say we're tricking it or we're stifling it or um, repressing it, um, oftentimes the um, immune system finds, uh, finds, eventually finds ways around that or the body starts to build up defenses to the trick or the ambush that we're trying to play on it. Um, I currently receive the, the, the major drug that's helping me to, you know, basically I guess stay alive is something that... Um, kind of ambushes my immune system from reacting to uh, my my own body, it's identifying some of my muscle receptors as a foreign, uh, as an adversary. So my immune system is overactive, making a mistake. It's like, a, it's, like a, it's like friendly fire, so to speak, or it's like identifying a platoon of troops or a regiment of troops as uh, as bad, even though they're not, they're good, they're what we want in the body. And so the drug I take doesn't attack only when the body is attacking, it actually kind of, you know, sneaks into their barracks and attacks them uh, preemptively, uh, kind of when they're sleeping or when they're still developing. That's the best kind of like army, military, lay person's term, um, uh, let's say, uh, lay person's uh, language that I can use without getting too deep into the... Uh, 
into the science. But 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 what it's called is it's called as attacking the complement. The complement is what sends out um, those um, those uh, uh, um, uh, let's say anti uh, anti immune you know warriors to attack my body. Um, the thing about the experience of having an, an, a rare autoimmune condition like I have is that um, the body is, the war never ends. The, my body is a battleground, and that battleground is being uh, played out 24-7, 365 days a year, without any rest, without any um, uh, res respite. Um, so even though I may feel like right mentally, emotionally, or physically at very rare times, like I'm like I can just like you know, like I'm okay, I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm okay, or I'm relaxed, or I can go for a walk, or I can do things you know physically. The battle's still being waged on a on a on a cellular and even a molecular level. Um. What is so infuriating, and really it is infuriating, what is so troubling and disturbing is that when someone like me goes to an institution, goes to an emergency department, um, for myself, I know that I often put off going to the hospital longer than I should because I'm hoping that um, staying home or not going, that my body is going to recoup. Um, so maybe I increase or I tighter or I play around with my medications I also take uh, high doses of steroids, and oftentimes if I tighter that up, which is, you know, um, not a good thing, um, but if I do that, that can often save me from a, from a, uh, a larger crisis. Um, the, three, the three stages that are often commonly referred to in terms of my disease are a flare, an exacerbation, and a crisis. A crisis is like you're either very close to or you're already being put on a, on a vent or a respirator because your body needs that assistance. Um, I was close to that this time. Uh, the justification could have been for me to be on a vent at different junctures. I was not put on one. I'm glad I wasn't put on one. I'm glad I didn't, you know, I was able to fight through and didn't need one because it would have been pretty risky um, just because it's traumatic. And I've been vented uh, three times before. It's extremely traumatic, extremely uncomfortable, painful. It's just, it's not a good situation. Um, and, um, but the numbers and the trouble, the challenges that I was having, uh, certainly a doctor could have come in and said, look, we want to, we want to vent you because of how you're doing. Um, I'm, I'm currently reading through roughly 5,000, 5,500 pages of my medical data from two hospitals combined. Eventually one hospital was so bad and so not attending to my care that I decided to just leave and Uber myself over to another hospital. Now you may say, well, if you were Ubering over to another hospital, you probably weren't that serious. Well, I was, I was that serious. I could barely get, uh, get myself, I couldn't get myself uh, from the room downstairs. Uh, I'm not gonna go into every nitty gritty detail of what was said and done to me, but, um, you know, the staff, when I finally said, you know, pull my lines and pull my tubes and pull everything because I'm getting out of here, uh, they were real quick. They were really, they were like, it was like a, you know, like someone was coding. They were so quick to get me out of there. But yet when I was, 
pressing my call button at different junctures when I needed help. Sometimes an hour would go by, sometimes two hours, sometimes 20 minutes. It's unacceptable. If someone's on, on I don't care if it's a med surge or a step-down unit, if someone's pressing the button that they need help, they need help. I've been in the hospitals many times over the years. These call buttons don't even work. The technology is so low-grade and outdated. Um, it you know Oftentimes they can't hear what you're saying into the stupid remote that's also part of the it's also part of the TV makes no sense uh, attached to the bed um, which you know if you drop it you can't reach it so then if you're in a critical situation you can't uh, can't even speak to someone um, just really poor technology so I, I'm taking back a little bit of what I said uh, at the intro because uh, really some of the technology is woefully and po poorly outdated broken, no one cares to even get it fixed, because you say that the first day you're in that bed or in that room, and uh, it falls on deaf ears. Um, I was in a room that was uh, a corner room, which should have been an office for someone, right near two double doors that have those, like, bar the bars, those, like, metal bars that you push that are really noisy, kind of like old, you know, gym doors, um, um, you know, in like a high school or whatever. But anyway, there, there is a handicap button that people can press. But all night, all night, either hearing that handica handicap button being pressed or the double doors. I'm not saying anyone else should have been in this room like like that I, I should be entitled over someone else. That room should not be a room. Um, I really, you know, I know hospitals have, have uh, sometimes a scarcity of rooms and they need space and it's a money thing. Well, figure it out. I don't know. I don't know what to say, but that room can be... It shouldn't have been. I mean, it was it was costing me sleep, which is something that I really desperately needed, and uh, definitely not fair to me or um, or anyone. Uh, but the things that I was hearing being so. First of all, by the third day that I was in the hospital with with uh, getting getting some more specialized infusions with some specialized tubing in me, some real you know some real procedures that had to be done, uh, and I can get more into detail um, to them at some other time. But from day three, a doctor, a resident, came in and was stressing to me that um, that I, I may be experiencing anxiety due to my condition. And I said to her, this is not psychosomatic. And she said, oh, no, 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 I wasn't saying that at all. Okay, all right, good. Then there's nothing to talk about here. Every day forward from that third day, at least one person came into my room to try and offer me anti-anxiety meds. It's a disturbing pattern. And the only, first of all, I don't have a profile that indicates anxiety. That's number one. I don't have a profile that indicates that I've ever taken medicines for anxiety outside the hospital. That's number two. Number three, just because you want a calm, complacent, and uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Calm, complacent, and... Um, you know, like lockstep patient, a patient that's going to listen to you, do everything you say. You don't give a patient anti-anxiety meds for that. I don't take benzos. I don't take opioids, really. Uh, I don't take anti-anxiety meds. I had one experience with an anti-anxiety med from a doctor I was going to. They didn't listen to me. The side effects were contraindicated for my condition. And, um, and I took one pill, and it was a bad experience. And I said, I don't need this stuff. I never, it was really, I was really more taking it for the pain blocking mechanism that was in that medication. But um, these medications were being pushed on me till the, uh, basically till the day I left uh, the second hospital. Uh, one neurologist told me she wanted me on a drug called Wellbutin, 
which is like an antidepressant, anti-anxiety, after just telling me it wouldn't kick in for about four to six weeks, and I said, but you just told me it wouldn't kick in for four to six weeks. She said, yeah, well, I'll give you a booster of Ritalin. And it's like, what? What? Are, what's going on here? The hospital staff would not attend to my critical situation, which was diaphragmatic failure, diaphragmatic muscle failure. It's a very serious condition. Your O2 sats can be at 98%, 100%, 94%, in the 90s, in the high 90s, in the high 80s, doesn't really matter. But I could be looking like a normal, healthy individual, breathing uh, really well if you're looking at a machine and you're looking at the O2 sats. But if I'm huffing and puffing or my diaphragm is not working correctly, that diaphragm is eventually going to stop. It's like your hand squeezing a ball. You might be able to crush that, that ball, that... Uh, you know, that, that squeezy ball for a while, for 60, 70 squeezes for a minute. And then what's going to happen at minute two, three, four, five, or six? The hand's going to start to get tired. Eventually, your hand's going to cramp up so much that you're not even going to be able to squeeze it once. Or prior to that, it's going to slow down. And you're going to be able to squeeze it, right, X number of times per minute versus prior, I'll double that. Right? If I'm going and squeezing a, squeezing a ball with my hand, I may be able to squeeze that ball 40 times in a minute. Well, the second, third, fourth minute, it's going to be less. Certainly by the fifth minute. So, you know, these people come into the room. They claim they know the condition. They don't. Even the experts that come into the room claim they know the condition. They don't. I had a doctor. Uh, there were times I was nonverbal. There was times I had a BiPAP on. There were times they wouldn't let me have the BiPAP despite it giving me rest, I, my, my breathing system needed to rest, I needed to relax, I needed to work less on helping me to breathe, my muscles needed to rest, the same thing as that hand squeezing that ball, or a, a person playing basketball, they've been running full court for the entire first quarter, okay, they may need a few minutes of rest that second quarter, or they're going to be dehydrated and their legs are going to give out from under them, um, you know, I'm also not in the, I'm not exactly right at the moment that I'm there in pristine uh, uh, health condition when I'm going to the hospital. So I'm a little bit behind the eight ball, right? Um, I had nurses uh, teasing me, right? Like I couldn't reach something because my, my, my body, uh, my muscles are not working correctly. Uh, and that changes minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day. There's not, it's not fully understood why that necessarily changes, right? without a pattern, let's say, or with a pattern. It's not fully understood why I'm getting this or that medication and they're not working anymore. It's like an exploratory, figure it out, trial and error kind of thing. But when I can't reach something and I tell the nurse I can't move my arm that way and then the next day she comes in and and she's, uh, or, and I can, and then the third day she comes in and she's like, oh, well you could yesterday. No, I, I don't, I don't need that judgment. When I'm trying to do a, uh, a, um, uh, a test for lung capacity, meaning it's testing not only how much air I'm breathing in, but what are the cubic, uh, well, not the cubic, but what's the uh, force, actually, sorry, what's the uh, force with which I'm breathing out, which determines that whether or not I'm holding on to too much CO2, and when I get a number that indicates that I should be intubated, even though, again, we didn't, and the respiratory therapist says in front of me that I'm actually faking and dogging the test. The test is a mechanical test. You breathe into a tube and, it's, and, and there's a meter and it's read mechanically. I think sometimes they have a digital reader. But either way, for a, a therapist to say that in front of me 
when I was trying my hardest, um, there are times where my, my, uh, my functions, meaning bulbar, bulbar of the mouth, the mouth, the neck, the cheeks, the, that area, the, um, the jaw. So there are times where I can't even grasp with my mouth the, um, the, uh, you're breathing it basically into a tube, into this mechanical machine. So if I can't create a suction, right, I can't create uh, uh, um, a suction around the tube, then the number's going to be low regardless of whether the force that I'm getting out is at a good level or not. There's not going to be a suction on it, so that mechanical tool may not be the best judgment at that point. Maybe putting a hand on my chest and watching my diaphragm, and there's other things that can be done, and that also indicates that I'm not doing so well. So the people that were coming in and the people that get frustrated are doctors that, and nurses that don't understand the condition, don't know what to do, don't have a solution for me, which oftentimes there isn't. Sometimes it's just like do nothing, uh, weren't getting me my medicines on time, and then blaming me for sabotaging my care. That's actually in my data, in my notes. Um, that I was sabotaging my own care. There are times where they're telling me to take pills. Well, if I'm not verbal and I can't talk and I'm telling you I can't swallow, you as staff insisting that I take my pills is a fool's game because people die in hospitals from asphyxiation. People die from choking even in hospitals. I don't want to choke. I don't want to have to have someone carve a hole in my neck, God forbid, you know, create like a stoma or something like that to get out a pill that I'm choking on. Or I don't want it to go down the wrong tube and go into my lung and then I have some kind of, uh, you know, bad pneumonia from a pill going into my lung. I know, I'm, I'm aware of what's going on with my swallowing. And if I say I can't swallow... It means I'm having trouble. And there were times where I was taking risky, risky risks, risky moves in, in, in trying to swallow pills I needed to swallow because I didn't want to have to get what's called a, um, a, a nasal tube, which is a nasal gastric bypass. It goes, a tube goes up your nose, down through the back of your throat, into your stomach, and then they can pump in, you know, uh, uh, either a liquid or a pill into your stomach. I've had that done before. It feels like your nose is being, you know, shattered. It feels like your nose is being broken. Um, the one time we tried, well, we tried it twice, really. We tried it once, and there was too much bleeding, and they pulled it back out. I, it was in. One time, they, sorry, they tried it a few times, and I was choking on the tube. Um, the tube was actually probably too small, so it was just like, wasn't rigid enough, and it was just kind of like dangling and causing me to causing me to just, you know, irritating the back of my throat and causing me to cough right away. I was gagging on it, so we pulled it right back out. Um, but the thicker one kind of just goes up, makes the nose crack, goes through. So I was bleeding a lot, and they're like, oh, we've never seen so much blood. I'm like, you're putting a tube up. There's cartilage in my nose. It's against the bone. It rubbed it. Who knows what kind of stuff I have with my septum or whatever. I mean, I'm on lots of steroids. Maybe bleeding's more, bruising and bleeding is more possible. So I said to leave it in, but they said that they had had a patient with my condition who, um, who was uh, aspirating the blood uh, from, from the same exact you know, procedure uh, just a week before me or two weeks before me, and then she had to be intubated because of that. And that's a, very, that's a harder thing to catch even because... Um, you know, once you're bleeding there, even if you pull out the tube, it could be, you know, there could be a situation. So why they even tried the tube to begin with and then told me after, 
that that was the case. Um, it's just like, you know, so I, I, I didn't even mind that because it's like, okay, we were trying to do the right thing to get me the medication. But then they told me that that was something that happened just two weeks ago after they tried it, which doesn't make sense. But anyway, they pulled it out. They wouldn't give me the, medic the medicine um, through that tube. So I was, uh, look, I was, you know, very respectful, uh, never raised my voice, tried to speak to the teams, tried to be kind, tried to work with them. And every step of the way, uh, you know, I I was being treated, and it's not, again, not the first time, like I'm a peon, like I'm, um, like I'm there to be on vacation, uh, that I don't know anything about my condition, sabotaging my care, don't understand the science behind it, don't understand my own condition, uh, uh, refusing care, uh, not following directions. Now, peppered in with all of these, uh, all these notes or, or, checkoff lists or whatever you want to call it are people that were like he's lucid he's calm he understands directions uh high 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 functioning psychologically right etc 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 uh but yet they were pushing these medications that are contraindicated for me onto me all the time and in fact they sent a psych team to come and see me and what i told them was i will gladly speak to someone who has experience with neuromuscular disease and my situation, which I've never spoken to anyone who's an expert in this or who's an expert in terms of the psychiatry of life being drastically affected either from birth or later in life and the struggles that I'm having both on a, on a medical level and then also on an emotional and mental level, like life, real drastic life changes that have happened to me over the past decade. Um, and then they even gave me a name. They're like, oh, yeah, we have so-and-so. We're going to send him up. And then what happened with the psych uh, doctor, the psych expert, the psych uh, whatever. She was in charge, director, whatever her title was. She ghosted me. In fact, she put in the notes that she recommended no further uh, intervention and that I had refused um, care. I had refused their uh, consult, which is just absurd because that's not what happened. And if anyone's honest, it was in the room at that time. That's not what happened. I said I would gladly accept someone coming up to speak to me, and then they signed off and, on signing me out. Um, that's just egregious. It's not necessarily legally malpractice, because these days you can't sue doctors for almost anything. You certainly can't sue, sue institutions. But that's an, a, an egregious malpractice when someone says, yes, I would like some psychiatric support. Uh, but when I, when I said to them, no chemical intervention... Uh, it's like they put their hands up. That's the easy thing for them. Uh, maybe it's because they're all on the same medication and they want they want everyone on it with them, like Paxil or Wellbutin or whatever, you know, uh, whatever Prozac, whatever these drugs are. Um, they have this like weird, lustful desire for everyone else to be on them, it feels like. These were multiple doctors, multiple specialties, multiple hospitals, multiple age groups. It's like all of them want me on an anti-anxiety. And I told them at one point, you know what's causing me anxiety? All of you guys coming in here and pushing anti-anxiety meds like you're, like you're the damn pusher man. You know, it's like Curtis Mayfield all over. It's, it's, it's disturbing and it's spooky. And I said, you're trying to address an, an anxiety that I don't have and yet you're not addressing my diaphragm failure, which is happening, or my choking, or my saliva, or my weakness, or why yesterday I was okay and today I'm not, or my, you know, my, my GI issues, right? Like all the issues that, I'm, that are going on and I'm testing and things that needed to be done, and they're ignoring those. And it's, it's just a, it's such a, um, 
it's such a um, commentary, or that's not the word I'm looking for, but like a sad, sad um, commentary on the state of healthcare in this country. I mean, God forbid there was any kind of emergency, cataclysmic thing. I mean, these people can't handle it. They're so weak in their in their. They're so weak in their character too. They just can't handle. They can't handle the pressure. It feels like. I mean, I had patient relations in my room twice. Um, I tried to be diplomatic. I tried to explain where I'm coming from. I tried to be kind. I tried to give compliment. I called out the bullshit when I saw it. Because uh, not only did that respiratory therapist say that I was dogging it, but then like a week or I don't know what, the, maybe it was 10 days, two weeks before that, you know, one of the resident doctors had said that I was dogging it. You know, he was like, oh, you know, you're not really trying. I'm not really trying, yeah. I mean, I have nothing better to do when I'm in the hospital. It's not like I was doing anything. I wasn't too busy to take a 20-second a, a breathing test. Why would, I, why would I not put effort into it? You think that I want to stay here for the good food? So, or stay in the hospital for the good food? Or stay to be around you people who are, like, diabolical? No. It's, I don't do this out of enjoyment. I'm not faking it. It's not psychosomatic. So when he said that, I mean, that really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, I'm going to call you out for that bullshit, even if it's on rounds with, with other, you know, other residents or adjuncts or whoever. Sorry. Sorry you're going to be a little bit embarrassed. Deal with it. Grow some fucking tough skin. Grow some, grow some balls. And don't call out your patients for faking things when you, don't even, you haven't even read my history. You don't even know anything about me. You're not even speaking to me as a man and as a client of this. And you don't understand my condition. So maybe you should sit down and actually talk to me and see what's going on. And talk to me at length. Talk to me for 15 or 20 minutes and see me start to slur my speech like I'm a drunk sailor. Oh wait, why is that happening? He hasn't had a beer. He hasn't had wine. He didn't take any medications that would do that. So what's going on here? How did that, right? Like, have a conversation with me. Um, so, you know, these institutions are... You know, when with this whole Corona thing too, everyone wants to laud all the doctors and nurses as heroes. And I got to be honest, there's, I look at it as the the inverse of police. Police, I think they have, um, there are some bad apples in in police forces across the country. But I think the majority of police, again, if they hold by the Constitution, because we saw that this was not the case in March of Corona, not this past March, but a year ago March, that when police are coming to shut down churches and synagogues and mosques and any place of worship and arresting people and shutting down restaurants and hardware stores and racetracks and didn't matter what was open, right? The, the police were coming to enforce illegal actions by the government against the people. So I'm still not sure where we stand there, but I still would say that probably... Most police are good, decent. They may not be trying to be a hero. They may not run into the burning house, right? They may wait for the fire department. Like, each person makes their own choices about things to engage in, things not to engage in. But, for the most part, they want to do good, and they're not there to do bad. Let's put it that way. I look at healthcare as the inverse. That it's mostly, you have to, you have to search for a few good apples, and then it's mostly corrupted. And especially the money and the science and the, 
everything that goes into and, and the, the bullying, right? The system of medicine is built on bullying. It's built on money and profit and bullying. The bullying is even more of a serious issue, I would even say, than the money. Um, it's, it's just a system that means that the client, myself, gets the rectum end of all the shit of every nurse, of every resident, of every doctor, of every specialist, the bullying that they went through. And when I say bullying, I mean the system as a macro bullies them, and then whatever bullying that they've endured from their life as a little tot, as a toddler, through middle school, high school, college, whatever, whatever experiences they've had there, and then they entered the healthcare space, which is the ultimate bullying, where you're going to have to go through X number of years of school, and I don't mean just doctors, I mean even a, even a PA, even a physical therapist, PT, OT, you know, uh, someone, you know, a nurse, someone who just pulls blood, obviously doctors and specialists are going to have endured that for longer because they're in school and they're... Um, their fellows or whatever you want to call it, their uh, their residents for longer, and they're getting paid shit. That's part of the problem with the system. If these hospitals and institutions and the system has hundreds of billions of dollars, then pay residents a living freaking wage. You know, pay them a reasonable living wage. But some of the residents are just they're working crazy hours. Um, they're ridiculed if they call their covering, you know, covering physician with questions that they may have, so they don't call. I mean. I've read plenty of books. One of the books that I just finished was House of God. Um, it's from the late 70s, so things I'm sure have changed a little bit, but the basic premise and basic infrastructure is still there. It's an honest book. I don't think that that's, you know, that, that what he exposes or the raunchiness that he expresses is the same necessarily today in every hospital across America, but I think that a certain schmear, a certain stain a certain residue of what he explains in that book is generic enough that it probably goes on to a certain extent in every institution. And it's uh, bullying of the patients and keeping patients alive at all costs, uh, maybe which is not the best thing for, for, for the person and causes a lot of pain and, dis and, 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 and suffering and agony. And what I was going through um, uh, this particular 33 days was pain and agony and suffering and to the point where I wanted to um, I wanted it to end and whether that was going to be I go home and I am not well enough to be home and I don't have the mechanical slash uh, medical help that I needed at home to expire here or to expire uh, in the hospital but either way I just it was so bad that I wanted it to end and I don't even, even being intubated, I don't think that I was ever like, I think I wanted the intubation to end, but I wasn't thinking I wanted, you know, to just fade to black. The pain, and again, that may be an argument that I should have been intubated and highly sedated and on a lot more pain medication. Um, the most pain medication that they gave me in the ICU was, um, so I was being told, this is another discrepancy and absolute absurdity, but... I, I was being told that I was being given uh, two milligrams of morphine, uh, which was at that point um, PRN, which is patient request. Uh, and there was a limit. I think I could have like two milligrams every you know six or eight hours. Um, and um, it's a two milligram vial. However, when I was then uh, stepped down, back down to the med surge or step down unit, 
the doctor was arguing with me that uh, I was only given one milligram, and she only wanted to give me half a milligram. And, you know, they think that I'm, like, drug-seeking or whatever. It's like, no, excuse me, I don't take pain medications at home, and uh, Advil Tylenol is not going to cut it, and uh, even a milligram of morphine is really not a lot of morphine. It's just not a lot of morphine, and it's also relatively does not last very long in the body. Um, so she was arguing with me that I was only given one milligram. Meanwhile, it was like, I asked, I ask every time something's going into my tubes, into my, into my, uh, my line, as long as I'm awake when they're doing it. And, um, and they shouldn't be doing anything while I'm sleeping without my knowledge. So she said she had checked with the nurse and the nurse said that he'd only given me one, but every single time I asked, he said he was giving me two. So that doesn't make any sense to me. And then in the paperwork, some there was one point, I think, where it said two. I have to go back and check. And then one point where it said one. So he was only giving me half of it. Under what direction? And why? And why would that change? And why such a discrepancy? And why, are, why is there such miscommunication in the record-keeping and person-to-person, -person, both to me and then to that doctor, as to what was being given to me? We're talking about, like, what if that was something more serious that, like, could have been a mistake? Um... I was being given potassium. I complained that the potassium that was being given to me was really hurting my arm. Uh, they're like, yeah, well, potassium burns when it goes through into the line. I, you know, I don't think I'd ever been given potassium in an IV before. But I kept complaining it was really burning my arm, like really causing me pain. felt like my arm was being broken, like my arm was just breaking every second. It was a slow infusion over a number of hours. And then it turns out when someone else came in, they said, oh, this is being infused too fast. It could have been diluted further. And then it turns out that I actually had a, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I was going to say intrusion, but uh, infiltration. So it was actually infiltrating. Now, potassium going into the, into the tissue is not a horrible thing other than the pain. Um, it, it's okay if it goes into the tissue. It's not going to cause any issue other than swelling. Um, and so this nurse that I told this to several times and was uh, very deficient in her care of me, you know, no apology, no uh, reconciling, no, you know, it's like I called people in multiple times to deal with the issue. Like, this is not normal. This is extremely painful. And they're like, no, 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 potassium, that's what happens. No, it's not just burning. It's really hurting. It's like, I shouldn't have to endure that, especially if I call you in several times. Someone should be like opening their fucking eyes and checking what's going on. Pardon my F-bomb. This is not really a, a, um, a, uh, a podcast that's you know kid-friendly, although probably it's more kid-friendly than anything because kids should know this. So um, I'm not going to touch upon everything that I endured in this one uh, conversation, um, but uh, because it's just too much and it's, it's too much for me to regurgitate it, because it actually, when I think about it, it causes me a lot of trauma because I don't trust the system and I don't trust the establishment and I don't trust the doctors and nurses are going to have my best interests in mind. In fact, if I was to hit a crisis right now, I would not be able to go back to those two hospitals that I went to because the care was so poor. Because I would rather not be under their thumb uh, with their autonomy over my body. I mean, basically, unless I leave... They have autonomy over my body, um, and I don't want that. I would rather either, you know, leave this world at home or 
or help to uh, speed that process up if it's if it's necessary um, or if it's if it's just the end you know so I think about mortality and morbidity more than I would like to more than most people my age do um, uh, I was gonna add something and I just on that note and I forgot um, but yeah it's uh, it's you know most people don't realize just how jaded and um, adversarial these doctors are these experts these so-called um, you know uh, I mean there was one point where I was asking for my steroids to be titrated up I think I came in I was on like 30 milligrams maybe uh, I wanted them to move my steroids I, I, I said as as high as we have to go it'll it might help stabilize me because steroids are like an, an immune suppressant right they suppress the immune system I've been on as I think as high as 65 milligrams many years ago. I had just worked with an endocrinologist to move down from 30 to 20. Now it could be that that move helped to exacerbate my situation into a further crisis. It's hard to know. It's unlikely, but it may be part of the maybe part of what happened. There may be other inputs and it's really hard to know. It's really hard to discover well what was going on. There's environmental things, there's consumption, right? Foods, there's medication, there's a lot of different factors that can factor into that. Weather, um, you know, all these different factors that can factor in that it's hard to pinpoint one thing. Uh, but I had been titrating down one milligram every two months. That's an extremely slow um, titration down. And I was at 20 milligrams when I, uh, well, I was at 20 milligrams when I was experiencing difficulty. And then I tried at home to go back up to 30 to maybe stem off or stave off the more full-fledged crisis, and it didn't work. That's why I wound up at the emergency room, and uh, I took, you know, it was, I took a while. I took like a good, more than a month of living very, very harshly with my body not uh, abiding by what my brain tells it to do and having a lot of trouble, uh, but just trying to push through until I realized I need to go to the hospital. And then this so-called, you know, neurologist, when I'm saying, look, we got to move up my steroids, he's refusing to do it. He's shaking his head like that could put you into crisis. Okay, well, I'm really already borderline crisis as we speak. Like lifting up the steroids, not, not suddenly. You can't go from 40 to 80. Very, I mean, you can. It depends the situation. Context is important. This doctor didn't have context. So this doctor started talking to me about the movie Awakenings. And I and he he thought maybe I didn't know the movie. I'm very familiar with the movie. I, I've watched it several times. It's Robin Williams. It's uh, Tim, uh, Tim, I just forgot his last name. Tim whatever. Um, and it's about doctors. I think it's in the doctors in maybe the, the, the 40s and 50s who were doing work with people who had physical, um, physical troubles physical manifestations of disease, but they discovered that um, a lot of diseases could be solved through uh, helping these patients with their, with their psychological processes. Okay, well thanks for telling me about this process. As I'm sitting here telling you I need medication immediately, and I need it now, I'm nonverbal and I'm on a BiPAP. And you're sitting here lecturing me about fucking movies, about awakenings, which has nothing to do with me, and has nothing to do with my condition, 
and you think I don't even know about that movie? Hey, Doc, I have another movie for you. Pusher Man. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the songs and the album. Okay? Let's talk about that. Because that's the way I see you. And so it, it's, you know, really thoroughly disturbing when that's all a doctor has to add to the conversation. It was rude, condescending, interrupted me when I was talking, and then when I was talking also left the room in, in the middle of me speaking to the staff and to the doctor about what I need because I know what I need. Um, so the, this was, you know, this was... Um, it was multiple doctors, it was multiple hospitals and institutions, like I said. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's so traumatic. It's, I mean, there was a point where a tech at the second hospital came in and asked me if I needed anything. I said, yeah, and I pointed to the BiPAP, and she put the BiPAP on me. And, um, um, and I really needed it. I was really struggling. I hadn't slept. I couldn't sleep because my... I probably have apnea all the time, and I probably should wear it all the time. But regardless, when you're in the hospital and you're in a setting where your diaphragm is failing, so when you start to fall asleep, when your diaphragm is already weak, that apnea becomes more uh, magnified, right? Because now I'm already not getting enough oxygen in, and when I fall asleep, or I start falling asleep, and the diaphragm is going to relax more, it's relaxing from an even weaker state than, let's say, normal. So, I had the tech put it on me, I'm just starting to doze, and the nurse comes in and rips it off my face and says, you can't have that on, because their protocol and their rule was that you cannot have uh, the BiPAP on during waking hours, that was what they called it. So I asked them, what are waking hours in a hospital? A hospital is 24-7. A patient gets sleep when they can. I'm being woken up at 2 in the morning, 4 in the morning. You're taking blood gases, you're taking blood, you're doing, you're checking my vitals. Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sleeping from 9 p.m. To, 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 to 7 a.m. in the morning. It's just not how a hospital runs. It's not how a client, a patient, is able to get sleep. A patient gets sleep when they can sleep. What am I doing all day while I'm here? Yeah, PT or OT may come in, doctors may come in, rounds may come in, but I'm trying to get sleep however I can. I'm exhausted. My condition, one of the things that we most need is rest. It's sometimes hard to rest. Maybe due to a breathing issue. Maybe due to uh, uh, choking on my saliva. Maybe it's due to something else. Maybe it's due to the bathroom, needing the bathroom constantly. Maybe it's due to water retention. Like there's all these reasons why I may not be getting sleep. So if I can get sleep at any point during the day, that's when sleep time is. What do you mean waking hours? My waking hours were just from midnight till 5 a.m. while I felt like I was being stabbed in my back. That we never found the reason for. So I, that, that was my waking hours. Now I'm ready to sleep. So that's an absurd and idiotic protocol. I don't know where that came from, and I'm still working on uh, submitting to that hospital um, a, a uh, summary of their um, asinine policy, basically. Um, even my records, my records are 5,500 pages in a PDF document that I have to scroll through to read through. And the record should be 1,500 pages. The reason that it's 5,500 pages is because Doctors are too fucking lazy to actually put in the proper notes and not cut and paste everything. I mean, the, the repetition is like thousands of pages where you'll see a new note or a new thing logged and then there's 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 pages of the prior uh, vitals or the prior day or 24 hours 
um, because the system, the software system sucks. The doctors inputting the information, the doctors, nurses, and any other person inputting the information suck. They lie uh, every single time anyone asks me about my pain rating. I tell it was eight, nine, or ten. Never below that. Multiple, many, many, multiple uh, inputs where people are putting in that my pain level was zero, my pain level was two or three or six. Well, where are you getting that information from? Because it wasn't from me. And why would you be putting information in that I didn't give you? So I don't know if they're trying to undermine that. I don't know if they're trying to justify. That's why they don't give me pain medication. I don't know what the purpose is. I don't know what purpose it would be for me to fake a breathing tube, a breathing uh, um, exam. I don't know what purpose it would be for me to tell a doctor, let's boost up my steroids because I think that'll help me. And him saying, no, you could go into crisis. But I'm saying that for what? Because I want to be intubated? Because I think this is fun? Because I like having my, my life on a precipice? Because I like having a tube going down my throat into my lungs? And I have to shit myself. I have to like poo in bed, can't eat. May have to get a feeding tube if I can't get that breathing tube taken out within a certain amount of time. So that like, is that why I would try and, you know, boost my steroids up a little bit? And meanwhile, I had steroids in my bag and I should have just been taking them. And that was my foolish, that was my fool's game. I should have just been taking my own steroids and experimenting with it that way. But, um... But what I will say is that, you know, I learn more and more each time from these experiences. Um, the system is totally uh, broken, and the people in the system are what is breaking it. They are broken people. They're broken, they're angry, they don't like their job. It's just like, it's just like looking at, like, let's say, the NBA, right, or the NFL, professional sports. you got guys that are, that are phenomenal athletes. They're amazing at what they do. They exceed, they excel, they're going to the Hall of Fame, they win championships, or... They win a lot of accolades for their for their for their star power, star playing. Right? Could be professional sports. Could be a pianist. Could be someone at the top of their game. Let's say, but they're surrounded by team members that some of those people are like they're mediocre. They're really good. They may not care so much about a championship. They're like you know whatever. They do want to some or you got the guy that's not very good but really wants a championship. There's all the different nuance and flavor amongst that team, and I'm talking from the practice squad up through the, you know, white collar offices and the guy doing the crunching the numbers for the uh, for the you know for the uh, salary cap. Everyone in that building or in that organization has what fuels them and what their goals are in life and in, and in their work. And some people are at a championship level, and that's what they want. They want they want to they want their personal accolades, and they work at their job hard. But they want that team to come together and to win, and to win all the time, and to and to win championships. And a lot of times, it's just mediocrity. And the same thing happens in medicine, and that's why people die. Um, I, I'm not saying that's the only reason people die. I'm saying, but oftentimes, mistakes, sloppiness, not listening to patients is why people die. I was in a situation that doctors not listening to me very, very likely could have cost me my life. I mean, when I say likely, it didn't this time. But I was on a precipice, and it could have, what they were doing to me, very easily could have gone the other way. Um, I'm, I'm Jewish. There's a prayer you say when you know you're going to potentially expire from this world, whether that's from old age and you're in your hospital bed, and you're on your last breath because you know it's the end, or, or or you're in you're in hospice or whatever the case may be. You're at home. You say the Shema prayer. I said the Shema prayer twice in the hospital because I really thought that I was coming to the very end. 
and um, you know it's um, the the way that they kept me and the way that they were fighting me every step of the way was really just unconscionable. And the reason that I bring this up is because at some point many of us may be either in that situation ourselves, God forbid, you know, maybe you know someone listening has a condition, or you may be there with a loved one or a friend or a family member or someone else. And it's important to know that like the system doesn't necessarily have your best interests in mind. And I'll add, and I'm going to I'm gonna wrap up soon because I'm just, you know, this may have to be like a several part, but I have now, um, uh, I'm, I'm tired of the organization, there's an organization, there's a national organization that, um, you know, raises money and that is, that are the, uh, let's say, the largest organization for my condition. Um, I'm sure they do a lot of good. Um, I'm not, I'm not privy to all the good that they do or where all their money goes. Um, they have new leadership just in the past two years. Um, they put on an annual conference. It's great. Bravo. You know, I mean, I'll give them a round of applause. Um, but from my perspective, they're not very, um, involved in, um, patient ad- advocacy, not to the extent that I would, I would like to see more on the patient advocacy side than even the drug development side. I think that right now people need patient advocacy in a system that is burying them and losing them, and that, that should be more of a uh, more of a focus. And let the, the drug companies are going to do what the drug companies do. They're going to develop drugs to make money. You don't need a nonprofit organization to be uh, championing them. Um, in fact, sometimes we should be um, we should be. Uh, I don't want to say adversarial, but we should certainly be um, the man in the mirror for them. We should be, you know, reflecting what we're looking for as um, clients of this potential drug or or treatment. And um, all I wanted, all I put out on a few pages was that I want to hold a virtual, either Zoom or, or or Google Meet, you know, workshop. And people are like, "Oh, those are already being done." Those are already being done. There's people doing those. Yeah, there's people doing them. And I've attended one or two, and I think that I can uh, facilitate one of those as well. And what, what's the issue if people are doing them, but people want to tune into the one that I'm doing? What's the issue? I mean, it's not, I'm, it's not competing for anything. There's no money involved in it. I'm not competing. I'm just, it's, it's just if people want to invest their time, and maybe they just like the way that I facilitate better. Maybe I bring in an activity. Maybe I do a topic. Maybe I have a guest speaker that they like. Maybe I'm just going to do it differently. So I don't understand. People are just so rigid and so lockstep, locked into their thinking that this can only be done with the, uh, with you know, if if it's under the umbrella of, of this this particular organization or 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 you know. Oh, people are already doing that. Yeah, so people were also already building cars in 1923. And then other people said, I can also build a car. Okay? I mean, people were building people were building uh building spaceships. And then other people came along like Elon Musk and said he's like I can build a spaceship because the government's not doing it well enough. Okay? I mean, like, you know, there's people that are making drugs out there, right? Like making a drug and then once it goes uh once it goes, um, what do you call it? Uh, um, uh, once they lose their, you know, the patent is up. Other companies come in and say, "Well, we can also produce this drug." Okay, there's all. I mean, like it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. You could say anything. Okay, there's companies that were producing baseball mitts, and then another company and ten other companies said, "We can also do that. We could do it just as well, if not better." Same thing with boots. 
Same thing with vodka. Same thing with computers. Same thing with service industries, services and restaurants and foot rubs and, I mean, massages and, uh, you know, Uber came along and said, we can do the, we can do the, you know, transportation, ride sharing or whatever you want to call it, you know, taxiing people better than the taxis can. So why would my virtual workshop where I'm making no money from anyone, making, I'm simply just trying to facilitate people who also have my condition to come together, to share some laughs, to share some experience, to share some wisdom, and then maybe have an activity that breaks the ice, that causes us to have some camaraderie and community. And that was basically my post, and people have a problem with it. So part of my problem these days also is that people in the community, in the uh, community in social media and in the community who have this this same disease um, are so petulant and childlike and territorial. You want to have territory, go piss on someone else's lawn or backyard or, or your own. This is not the place for territory, okay? This is the place to help the person to your right and the person to your left and the person in front of you and the person behind you. And, and have camaraderie and community and say, how can I help? How can, how can we share better? How can we communicate better? The fact that I mostly go to Facebook for my information is amazing and it's also woeful. It's great that Facebook exists and I actually can connect and share with people around the globe about what's going on, but it's very, very, very bad for the storage of that information, meaning that once it's in a thread, it gets buried by the next content. There's very little ability to go back and search for the information that I might want uh, on a future date or to, to store that information in any meaningful way. It's not what Facebook was built for, and it's still not built for that. And so um, uh, I want to connect in another medium, and I want to connect, uh, let's say, it's online, but offline, I want to see people's faces. I want to hear their voices. I, I want the uh, tone of a text right? That you, or, or, or a thread that you can't figure out sometimes. You can't figure out tone, sometimes what people mean on a thread, and it's just reading a long thread alone. No, I want to communicate with people. I want to have a group activity. I want to uh, uh, maybe connect to people geographically. Um, uh, you know, maybe we form our own little uh, uh, thing where we're going to meet up somewhere, and it's not an annual or national conference. I want to have a shit list of doctors. I want a doctors where we have a shit list. These doctors are no good. Should not seek care to them. They're bad. They damaged me. They hurt me. They did this. I have plenty of stories myself, and I have there's hundreds of stories out there, thousands of stories out there from fellow people with this disease that would say, "Don't go to that doctor," as well as a star list. Hey, these doctors are the good ones to go to. This one's okay, but better than uh, anyone else in the area, geographically, right? So the people that are putting on these virtual workshops or, or whatever you want to call it, Zoom calls, that are under the umbrella of the nonprofit uh, organization probably can't do that. They can't speak freely. They have to worry about you know a board or, or, or other people who may say, you can't say that with if you're holding this as an official... Uh, virtual workshop, you know, under the auspices or umbrella of the organization. I'm tied to no one. I just speak for me. And I just speak for, you know, uh, you know, a, 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 it's just a bunch of people coming together, sharing ideas. So, um, there'll be more on this. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a painful reality. 
and it's something people should be aware of. And I will get back to, um, uh, you know, further sessions on uh, on Jeff sessions on Jeff sessions maybe. Yeah, that little runt. But um, anyway, I'll be back soon. Thanks for tuning in to Mike Vetch. Thanks. Have a great weekend.